Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for February 1st, 2018. Uh, today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about a bunch of movie news, including a Men in Black spinoff directed by F. Gary Gray, USA Network and Sci-Fi now being able to drop the F-bomb on television, Heath Ledger planned to return to play the Joker again after The Dark Knight, uh, and Tiffany Haddish potentially working with Paul Thomas Anderson. What a combo. Uh, in the spoiler room, we're going to be talking about some Game of Thrones Season 8 spoilers, so stick around for that if you're interested. And my name is Ben Pearson, I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined today on the podcast by SlashFilm Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. All right, guys. So uh, we're getting there, we're getting close to the end of the week. I'm sure we'll maybe tomorrow we can talk about what you guys are planning on doing for the Super Bowl and stuff like that. But in the meantime, let's just jump into the news today. Uh, let's kick it off with Brad. There's a Men in Black spinoff coming? What's happening here? Yeah, so uh, we actually first heard about this project sometime last fall. Um, now it's finally coming together because Sony Pictures is all franchise-hungry again now that Jumanji did well at the box office, surprisingly well even. And so now they're looking to get some of their more recognizable titles back in play. And that includes Men in Black, um, which now has a director for the, what is being called a spinoff. Um, and it will be The Fate of the Furious Helmer, F. Gary Gray, who also directed Straight Outta Compton. Um, now, this, this movie is being called a spinoff, but it sounds more like a half-legged like sequel, half-reboot in the same way that Jurassic World was. And that's uh, basically what they're trying to do with this relaunch of the franchise won't have any of the original cast members so Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith won't be back but I imagine they'll make some reference to the mythology of the original 3 movies and I'm I'm sure the agency will have existed long before now and things like that in the same way that Jurassic World made reference to the original park and and that kind of thing so we don't really know any story details at this point but it'll just the movie is, uh was said in September of last year to focus on new characters chasing villains that puts the the picture on more of a global scale than the previous movies. So I, I imagine that means that the action won't be as isolated to just New York as it was in the original three movies. That's mostly where the alien threats unfolded and the action stayed there. But 
obviously something as big as the Men in Black organization probably has worldwide implications. So there'll there'll probably be other agencies from around the world. And I'm betting that what uh, screenwriters um, that the screenwriters have in mind, uh, Matt Holloway and Art Markham, who wrote Iron Man, is to expand that to include other agencies from around the world, which would likely open the door for other spinoffs to follow this as well. So it seems like they're they're sort of going in line with uh, the Ghostbusters plan here, then, right? Yeah, because that, originally there were there were hopes that after the the female Ghostbusters took off, they could expand and do another new branch of Ghostbusters. And Dan Aykroyd even talked of hopes of there being international Ghostbusters around the world. So it seems like maybe they're trying to apply that formula to Men in Black, which isn't a bad idea. And I think honestly works a little bit better for Men in Black since the idea of you know, intergalactic relations is a, a much bigger worldwide deal than something like just capturing ghosts. Yeah, that's a good point. I uh, The original Men in Black has been on TV a lot lately, and I, I've been catching pieces of it here and there. And that is a movie, it's, what, 20 years old, over 20 years old at this point? But I think it holds up really, really well. Um, HT, what do you think about the idea of this uh, Men in Black spinoff continuation? Uh, is, this, is this a franchise that you want to see more of after the first three movies? I really enjoy the first two movies, based, mainly based off the charisma of Will Smith, but I do agree with you. The first movie holds up extremely well. It's just a fun, really thrilling popcorn movie. Uh, and like the, I think the third one tries kind of what this legacy sequel is trying to do. It sort of tries to build this world, and um, I'm not sure how well that world can be built in the Men in Black universe, but... There have been successful legacy sequels, like at Creed, for instance, which brought that um, the Rocky franchise into the modern universe. So mm-hmm. it it could happen. I I just don't know if they can. Um, whoever steps into the shoes of Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones in this spinoff can fill those shoes. And Brad, what do you think about this? Just the Men in Black uh, franchise as a whole. What are your thoughts on the first three films? Uh, I love the first one. I hate the second one. And uh, I like what the third one tried to do with time travel and whatnot, but it didn't quite work for me, even though I enjoyed it. Um, so I'm, I'm down for seeing what they can do to expand the franchise. I think it's, it's ripe with a lot of opportunities to keep going. Um, I still lament the fact that the 21 Jump Street crossover with Men in Black is stuck in development because that was such a wacky, cool, fun idea that I still would love to see come to fruition, mm-hmm. but it'll probably be stuck on the back burner uh, forever at this point. But, you know, hopefully one day that will happen. All right, so let's move on to our next item, and that is a, a, the unlikely pairing of Tiffany Haddish and Paul Thomas Anderson have been discussing potential movie ideas. HT, what is going on here? Well, it's un- it sounds like an unlikely pairing, but Paul Thomas Anderson has been positively raving about Tiffany Haddish ever since she became the breakout star of Girls Trip. And uh, he has been frequently talking about how he wants to work with her. And even at the um, uh, New York Film Critics Circle Awards, he, in his uh, uh, acceptance speech for Best Screenplay, uh, addressed a note to Tiffany Haddish asking her, I know everyone wants to work with you now, but please may I cut to the front of the line. And he allegedly at that point gave her his phone number. And it turns out that was more than just a awards ceremony stunt. He actually did give her his phone number as a way to reach out and try to 
work on his next movie with her potentially and she confirmed Tiffany Dish confirmed to Vulture that she has been talking to Paul Thomas Anderson on the phone several times and they've been discussing potential movie idea projects and she said we're probably going to work together so we don't really know what this project will be yet or whether it's really in development but Hadish said um well, we've been talking a lot about Los Angeles back when Central Avenue was the Sunset Boulevard of L.A. And uh, that kind of gives tiny hints to the setting of the movie. Uh, the Central Avenue was in the 50s, the uh, nicknamed the Little Harlem of L.A. So it seems like a sort of good good placement for a period piece by Paul Thomas Anderson set in the 50s where, where jazz and black culture really blossomed. And Tiffany Dish... Um, even though she's only been in one really big role, she is, I think, well-deserving of a movie where she headlines a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Maybe like her own little punch-drunk love. Yeah, so I have to admit that I missed Girls Trip last year, and I have still not seen it. I actually am one of the few people that still subscribes to Netflix's uh, disc plan, so I just I got do. I oh do. cool. So I just got the disc, uh, the Blu-ray of Girls Trip in the mail, and it's sitting on my counter right now, waiting for this weekend to roll around so I can finally catch up with this movie. But I've heard nothing but great things about Tiffany Haddish's performance in that movie. I've seen her on, you know, she hosted SNL uh, not too long ago, and she's you know been making the rounds talk show circuit and all that kind of stuff and she seems like a wildly entertaining person so um you know she's she's far more bombastic than uh, than um paul thomas anderson's regular collaborators uh, tend to be uh, especially like somebody as uh, as subdued as um as freaking Daniel Day-Lewis, for example. Um, <laughs> but if, if Daniel Day-Lewis uh, retiring means that Paul Thomas Anderson and Tiffany Haddish start working together and she becomes his new muse, I mean, that sounds like a really <laughs> a really fascinating scenario. Brad, I know you're a fan of PTA's uh, movies. What do you think about the idea of him making another film that sort of dives into a different period of L.A. with Tiffany Haddish front and center? Yeah, I mean, I'm always down for a new Paul Thomas Anderson movie, no matter what it is. Um, it's he could literally come out with the weirdest sounding movie, and I'd be like, "Yep, I'm, I'm, I'll be there for that." And the idea of him working with someone like Tiffany Haddish, who is predominantly known for her comedic chops, is exciting because one of Adam Sandler's best movies by far is Punch Drunk Love. And so, whether he wants to work with her on a drama that has her in the lead, or whether he wants to dip his toe into a little bit more of a straightforward comedy than we've seen him do before. Um, I, I think either way, it's going to be something interesting to watch. Also, on a side note, I'd like to see Tiffany Haddish uh, in the Men in Black spinoff as well. Oh, wow. That would be incredible. Ooh, <laughs> I would love her to see her in the lead role. She would be one who could step up to Will Smith's shoes, I think. Yeah, man, that, that is a good call. So, Brad, let's jump to our next news story here, which is one that I have not—I <laughs> admit I have not read this story yet, but I've read your headline, which is, Sci-Fi in USA will now be dropping F-bombs like a motherfucker on TV. What is going on? So, what's kind of interesting about this is that um, basic cable channels actually don't have an obligation to not swear on TV. They're not beholden to the guidelines that the Federal Communications Commission uh, puts forth. They have their own standards and practices divisions who uh, try to adhere to them just to be uh, tread lightly simply because they don't want to upset viewers and they don't want to upset um, advertisers. But there's no rules that dictate basic cable can't swear on television. It's only the networks that have to adhere to the, uh, the broadcast networks like NBC, ABC, and all them who have to follow those rules. So 
Sci-Fi and USA are being a little bit more bold and daring by throwing caution to the wind, and they're not going to go out of their way to censor uh, the word fuck on any of their shows anymore. This is something that we've seen over the years change a bit as cable has gotten a little bit more edgy. Um, shows on the networks like AMC and FX have been using the word shit for a while. After that was one of the more taboo words that couldn't be said on TV. And for a while, Comedy Central had their secret stash uh, programming block where they uh, had movies and stand-up specials that were uncensored, where they said fuck and all the words that you're usually not allowed to say on TV. They don't have the secret stash anymore, but they still broadcast uncensored programming after midnight. And more recently, cable networks like FX and um, Sci-Fi have been a little bit more bold as well by occasionally throwing in use of the word fuck. Mr. Robot did it uh, famously in an episode. And now Sci-Fi and USA are basically just saying, you know what, we're just going to do this from now on because they they're, they don't want to have to dip out the audio uh, in order to get this to fly. And for me, it, it just kind of makes sense. I mean, this is the way people talk. We're talking about shows that air later at night, so kids aren't watching. It has the TV MA rating, so it's meant to be for adults. And at the end of the day, the amount of violence and disturbing imagery we're seeing on TV is nothing compared to hearing the word fuck said on television occasionally. So this has actually already started um, when the third season of The Magician started on sci-fi. The co-creator of that show, uh, Sarah Gamble, announced that the entire season three wouldn't have any of the F-bombs censored whatsoever. So now they're just going to let it go. And so I imagine whatever they have worked out with their advertisers, they're cool with it. They're like, yeah, you know what? Do what you want to do creatively, and they're not going to get fined for it or anything. So from now on, when you watch stuff on Sci-Fi and USA, if they want to put the F word in there, they're going to do it. So, HT, is this cool with you, or is this the beginning of a slippery slope? (laughs) No, I'm all for saying fuck more. Um, I think this makes a lot of sense because Mr. Robot, which airs on USA and is one of the most violent brutal and soul-crushing shows I've seen uh, has tons of blood uh, letting and and gore, but I cannot say fuck as much as even films, although films also have their really archaic uh, censorship. Um, So I think that that sort of double standard between uh, violence and cursing in both TV and films is a little, is like I said, is archaic. So I'm all for it letting loose a little bit more on swear words because I don't think it's quite as harmful to young children or families as much as the overwrought violence that we often see. Mm -hmm. I wonder if this has anything to do with the, um, I guess, proliferation of uh, online advertising and, and just like, you know, in, in years past when TV ads were much more important because that was literally the only place that people could see these these shows. I think the influence of advertisers and maybe the the network's um, willingness to uh, you know comply and sort of toe the line when it comes to this kind of stuff um, was probably uh, in you know they they probably put a lot more weight on it back then when like the threat of a, an advertiser pulling commercials from their show meant a lot more because I think now it's like, you know, you can find advertising, you can you can get your show out there in so many different ways and and stuff like that. I'm wondering, Brad, do you think there's anything to that? Do you think this is a coincidence, the timing here, or do you think it's like part of the ever changing digital landscape? Uh, yeah, I mean that probably plays into it a little bit, but I think that more more often than not, creators are just sick of being restricted creatively. 
And if they know that they're not going to get any blowback from it, then they might as well just do what what they're going to do and then, you know, just let the chips fall as they, they might, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think some people, audiences, are going to be upset by it, but it's like if you're going out of your way to watch this show that already has, you know, gruesome violence in it, then, like, are you really going to be upset that there's some F-words in it now? It's, you know, you have to pick your battles. And I, I've never understood just the, the sensitivity that certain members of the, you know, uh, viewing public have when it comes to language, when I think images of violence and, and things like that are just so much more uh, jarring. But think of the children, Brad. The children. <laughs> uh, you it's know, like I, how I, the hey, fuck the children. <laughs> wow. It's like how the King's speech got radar for having absolutely no violence, but a string of f bombs and uh, and other cursing. So it's it's really funny. Yeah, there's definitely a, a huge double standard there. And I, I would encourage anybody who has any thoughts about this to email us at peter at slashfilm.com and let us know what you think. Because, I, you know, as much as I joke about somebody think of the children, I'm sure some of you out there have kids and, and probably have some pretty strong feelings about this. And we'd actually love to hear from you and, and you know, wonder what you think the, the solution to this kind of uh, issue should be. Um, but in the meantime, let's jump on to our last news item of the day. And that is uh, Heath Ledger had actually planned to return as the Joker after The Dark Knight. HT, what do we know? So this is a, a story that's circulating around the, the geek community at, right now, and it stems from an interview with um, Heath Ledger's sister, Kate Ledger, which she uh, conducted with an Australian news outlet last year in promotion of the documentary I Am Heath Ledger. So she said he was so proud of what he had done in Batman, and I know he had other plans for Bat- for another Batman. He loved working with Chris Nolan and Christian Bale and Gary Oldman. He just had the best time ever doing that film. When he came home at Christmas, he couldn't wait to tell us all about it, and he was doing the voice and laughing, showing me all the rushes. We had a great time. So it's it kind of is her way of addressing a lot of those rumors and speculation popping up after Heath Ledger's tragic passing uh, 10 years ago. Wow, it's been that long. Um, that he was depressed and he uh, kind of did this out of some sort of um, being affected by the Joker performance, but uh, it was not that way at all. And Heath Ledger was intending to return to the role uh, or reprise the role if he if he was called for. And uh, the end of The Dark Knight did leave his fate in question because he did survive at the end, I guess, Spoilers for people who haven't seen The Dark Knight. Um, (laughs) And uh, it definitely was left up in the air whether the Joker would return. And we kind of assumed he would until, of course, Heath Ledger uh, um, passed away. So actually, he passed away before the film came out. So that had that air to it. Uh, Brad, what do you think about this? I mean, obviously, it's a tragic thing. But uh, yeah, what are your thoughts about this in general? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely bittersweet. Um, I do wonder how, if what a Batman movie would have looked like in the hands of Christopher Nolan uh, if he did bring back the Joker in some capacity. Um, because all of Nolan's uh, Batman movies, you know, they kind of picked up after a certain period of time had passed between them. So uh, this, you know, would have been a movie that had would have had to address, you know, exactly how they were bringing the Joker back, you know, what, what his role is, and then, you know, would he be working with another villain, and how would that work? And considering how, you know, realistic and grounded Nolan's Batman movies was, it makes me curious as to what that kind of movie 
you know, would have been like. And it, it really is just a, a bummer that we don't didn't get to see Heath Ledger's, you know, performance again because that that's an all time great villain performance. It's just he's, he's just incredible in that movie. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good point too. I don't think I don't I can't imagine Heath Ledger and Tom Hardy's Bane being in the same movie and, you know, being on the same side and, and interacting with each other in that way. So I, I have to think that the Dark Knight Rises would have been significantly different if Ledger was still around I you know I think they took their time with that movie and and paid the proper amount of respect to Heath Ledger's legacy by not necessarily uh, mentioning that character again in The Dark Knight Rises but you know in in a perfect world where Heath Ledger was still around I I have to think that that movie would have been a a lot better and be a lot different (laughs) than the one that we ended up getting yeah I agree completely All right, so I I guess that's going to bring us to the end of the news segment. So I'm going to let you guys go here before I bring Jacob on. Uh, Brad, why don't you tell us where we can find more of your work online? Always writing on SlashFilm.com. You can also check out my Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And if you like movie podcasts with nonsense and jokes and ridiculous tangents, you can check out my podcast, which is called Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X, on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. And H.G.? You can also find me at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBooey. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. And joining me in the spoiler room is SlashFilm Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Aggie, uh, you mean SlashFilm Managing Editor and SlashFilm's resident Game of Thrones aficionado. Ah, yes, indeed, indeed. So uh, I guess this is the last warning for anyone who does not want to know what is going on in Game of Thrones Season 8. So tune out now. Join us tomorrow for another episode But if you guys are cool with uh, potential Season 8 spoilers, then listen on. So uh, a new report has come out from Watchers on the Wall, which is a famous, well-known Game of Thrones fan site. They have tracked down a video of the set of Winterfell being burned and and consumed in this massive fire, Jacob. This is not just like a tiny flame. This is is viewable from the road far away from the studio. (laughs) This is like a huge thing. Um, And This is uh, is a we don't need this set anymore fire. (laughs) That's sort of what it seems like, yes. And, And a different site called Belfast Live actually reported that the fire was part of a battle sequence that involved between four and 500 extras. So this is a pretty significant thing. Um, so now the speculation begins. Why is Winterfell burning to the ground? Uh, what do you think about this? And and is this like the final moment in Game of Thrones? Are we going to end on such a bitter moment that the, the, the final scene before the credits roll for the last time is going to be Winterfell scorched? <laughs> what, what do you think here? I don't think we're going to see uh, this at the end of the season. I think this is the beginning of the season. Season 7, as you may remember, ended with the Night King and resurrected dragon destroying the wall and marching south and Winterfell's not far from the wall it's uh in the show it, it takes people anywhere from a day to two weeks to get there depending on what the show wants but <laughs> in, uh, but in either way it's not gonna be a long hike for a massive army like that especially one who doesn't need to stop for you know food and sleep because they're all undead mm-hmm. so i think this is like either if not the end of episode one maybe episode two this is the big oh holy crap moment that kind of like that sort of drags you into the rest of the season uh, every Game of Thrones season used to have that used to always be episode four was the episode that ended with the oh now we're cooking moment <laughs> after a few slow episodes, but with the uh, with season uh, eight being only six, uh, this, this could be like this could be the first hour maybe even the first two hours. So what, what do you think? Do you think this is early on? 
Yeah, I think it's early on. I'm just wondering if the idea of the fire being the result of the Night King and, and an undead Viserion might be a little too obvious. I mean, sometimes the most obvious choice is the best one and the most effective one. But I'm wondering if, uh, if Game of Thrones might have something else up its sleeve. Like, could this be the result of Cersei coming north? Maybe it's not in the first episode. Maybe it's in the first half of the season. And there is uh, she's maybe changed her mind about wanting to sit out the battle in the north and and maybe she's you know scheming and and this is uh, the result of her schemes or and I was I was speculating about this in the article that I wrote I wonder if this could be a uh, you know some sort of collateral damage in a breakup between John and Daenerys because we know that they don't know that they're related yet we have no idea what that revelation is going to do to their relationship, which seems pretty solid right now, but that's a pretty big uh, <laughs> wrench to, to throw into that cog. So uh, do you think that Danny is ruthless enough to set Winterfell on fire if the situation calls for it? Uh, Danny is ruthless enough to do that. I don't think she is because uh, Targaryen is traditionally always married to family members, which is icky, but that's always the case with them. So I think Danny would be delighted to learn that Jon is a Targaryen because it just allows her to keep things in the family line and keep tradition alive. If it's so, anybody... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so yeah, you know, her mindset and family mentality makes it seem like she would be totally cool with it. Jon, on the other hand, seems like somebody who would absolutely not be cool with this information. No, so I'm wondering if if it's as ruthless as her maybe setting Winterfell to, you know, on fire so he no longer has an ancestral home and he's like forced to, <laughs> to go. I mean, that that's probably a, a bridge too far for a show that, uh, that has burned many bridges and gone arguably too far in the past. But, uh, but you know, I'm trying to trying to game theory this thing out a little bit, get get some interesting options on the table. Well, what, what option is if what if the Northerners learn that they're being ruled by or answering to a Targaryen? You know, all the Northern lords who swore to the son of Eddard Stark, and when they learn that he's not, maybe it's a civil war. Maybe we're seeing the, the North, in the face of much larger conflict, once again crumble over petty uh, BS. So I, I'm I'm still going to go with the obvious answer. I think this is undead dragon fire, uh, but I, you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe there's something else going on here. Whether it's Daenerys or some very unhappy northern lords. See, that's why I have you on this segment of the show because I didn't even really think about the potential of a northern civil war. But that is uh, almost an equally likely possibility, I think, at this point. So let's uh, let's pivot to the other potentially big reveal here, and that is that TV line wrote this article that uh, they didn't specifically mention Game of Thrones by name, but they're talking about a, a quote, wildly popular Emmy-winning award series or Emmy-winning series on a premium cable network that returns in 2019. So, you know, all signs point to this being Game of Thrones that they're talking about. And they this, this report is that there's a huge pregnancy twist that is coming in the next season. Uh, the unlikely pregnancy will have more than a few implications, both dramatic and darkly comedic, they say. And they also say that even though viewers are going to immediately assume that they know the identity of the baby's father, that assumption might not be as clear as it appears. So what do you think about who, this, who they could be talking about here? Oh, I think you and I both had opposite knee-jerk reactions as to who this is about. I thought it was referring to Daenerys, and it's a unlikely pregnancy because she was uh, left unable to have a child after the events of season one, uh, where 
she essentially was cursed by a witch uh, when she wanted her husband to um, be healed in a in a really screwy black magic moment that worked out poorly for everyone involved. Uh, but as we know, she started getting busy with John last season on a boat. Uh, and the, the incest nobody knows about except for a handful of scholars in the north. <laughs> and and it don't want I don't want to say like there's magic involved, but if anybody is going to um, uh, break whatever curse has been keeping uh, Daenerys from having a child, it would be her her family member who shares the same possibly strange mystical bloodline, who may also be a some kind of uh, savior for the world. Uh, as heralded by Melisandre's religion. Mm-hmm. So there's something going on here. Like the, the, the flame, you have a guy who um, represents the Lord of light, flame, fire, um, shadow. And then you have Daenerys, the uh, mother of dragons. So if it's ever going to be a match that breaks that curse, it's these two. And also it's directly comedic because uh, she's John's aunt. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah so it, that that's dark comedy. It's like, Hey, we have this, Surprising, mystical, magical pregnancy followed by, oh no, this baby is not normal. And before I get to the other possibility here, I wanted to read really quickly the curse that you mentioned uh, before. The witch Miri Mazdur, who uh, sort of jacked up her entire life when Khal Drogo was, uh, was gravely injured. Uh, her curse was, quote, When the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, when the seas go dry and mountains blow in the wind like leaves, when your womb quickens again and you bear a living child, then he will return and not before. So that is, uh, that's the, the prophecy so to speak and some people have you know this was written i think in the very first game of thrones book which came out in like the mid 90s so people yeah, have 96 have, i think yeah people have spent a long time trying to dissect this prophecy and, and understand and, and sort of get a little bit ahead of the story and wonder what's going to happen here um you know there have been like literal interpretations about the sun rising in the west and setting in the east and and whether that means that she has to you know, tr- uh, I guess there's literal interpretations and then metaphorical ones where she has like has to travel across the world, you know, to the east and the west and back and forth and all these different things. So th- there's a lot of uh, <laughs> there's a lot of um, speculation about what this could actually mean and whether this is something that could really happen. But I think you're right. The the idea of an unknown Targaryen coming together that could be enough to sort of uh, quote unquote break the spell. But the other option is that uh, that it's Cersei we were talking about. Yeah, this also makes so, sense. I just want to say because uh, the identity of the baby's father being a surprise, possibly, does not make sense for Daenerys. So what do you think about this? Yeah, and, and that's the thing is like, you know, this TV line report that says that the dad might be uh, a surprising factor. I mean, it seems like John would be the clear father in, you know, when it comes to Danny, unless there's like some sort of Dario Naharis holdover that we don't, <laughs> that we don't know about or something like that. Um, but the one, you know, where this makes a little bit more sense to me is in the case of Cersei, where in the, I think it was the season finale of last year. It's been so long, Jacob, since Game of Thrones, and then we have so much longer to go still until we get to see it again so over a year if, at least i know if our details are, are t- uh, you know a little bit shaky you'll have to to bear with us but i think in the season finale of last year cersei revealed that she was pregnant to both jamie and Tyrion. And I think there were, you know, at the time there was a lot of uh, brouhaha about whether or not that pregnancy was real or whether it was just another of Cersei's schemes. I, at the time, thought it was real. And if if that is the, the, the pregnancy in question here, the idea that the father not being who we think it is, 
means that it's not Jamie. So who else could it be? And that that is sort of uh, more disturbing to think about almost than the the incestual stuff between John and Danny because it means that Cersei would basically have to be getting it on with like the Mountain or Kyburn or like some of these people that are just the uh, you know that she's surrounded herself with and and sort of um walled off her her uh, her kingdom with. Um, <laughs> I mean that seems uh, probably pretty unlikely. But what do you think about the idea that Cersei is actually the subject of this uh unsurpri- or this surprising pregnancy? Uh, I'm I waffle back and forth on whether I think she's telling the truth or not. I I now think she is. Uh, but the reason why this doesn't line up for me is that uh Cersei has only ever loved one man, and that's her brother Jamie. Uh, she's only ever wanted to have sex with one man, and the one time we see her not doing that is with uh, Lancel, who's also a family member, and that was more of a desperate, sad action as opposed to a um, a romantic decision. I mean, she even even referred to her um, like to get the, uh, I don't think of a way to phrase this without being too filthy about not letting her uh, for, first husband uh, Robert Baratheon uh, finish properly. Uh, yes. So that it's, it's maybe a huge deal. The only man she's ever let really. Uh, be the intimate with her has been Jamie. So the fact that this line says surprising father doesn't line up with Cersei either. So uh, who knows? Um, I think this, like I said, the uh, father's identity being surprised could be referring to John not being who he thinks he is, but I don't see it's referring to Cersei. That actually makes a lot more sense than anything I was coming up with, and I, I, yeah, maybe that's that's the uh, the description there is the, the the key the key phrasing there is that the surprise identity of the father is a surprise to himself, not not necessarily to the audience, um, and yeah, that that definitely plays a lot better than <laughs> than the idea of Cersei like going to Bone Town with the mountain. So Jesus. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, all right. So do you have anything else? Um, uh, you know, Game of Thrones, like you said, we're like put over a year away, probably maybe like a year and six months even. Um, do, do you have any any other uh, expectations for season eight or any other um, implications of Winterfell burning or this pregnancy that you think uh, is worth considering at this point? I'm looking forward to seeing Winterfell burnt to a crisp in the opening credits. <laughs> man that would be uh they would be opening that up in in a pretty huge way oh also i, I wanted to mention uh one last thing i guess this is a good way to wrap it up is that uh there was a report that um uh, david benioff and dan weiss the showrunners of game of thrones might actually be filming fake endings for the show um in in order to sort of throw off the fans who are, you know, paying as close attention as we are right now at this point in the the production. Um, I know that filming is probably getting pretty close to uh, wrapping up because they've been going for a little while now. Um, And you mentioned sort of jokingly in the beginning of our conversation that this looks like the kind of fire where they don't need this set anymore. Do you think that they would actually build a set and set it on fire, you know, a fire of this magnitude? Again, you'll have to go and, and check out the video that we've actually embedded in our article at slash film to see the the full size of this thing do you think they would actually go that far as to literally set their set on fire just to throw off the fans uh, game of thrones has a huge budget but i don't think it's that huge <laughs> I, I i think the alternate endings will be a lot of character scenes a lot of uh here is a final dialogue between two characters they film two alternate takes are they do they like each other or hate each other in the vital scene who knows i don't think they're gonna film anything huge uh, as a distraction, but I, I do think uh, hopefully we'll get the Blu-ray loaded with all the alternate endings where a character says, oh, I'm going to go to clown school instead of becoming king, you know. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I sort of joked in the article that 
you know, I wouldn't put it past the Game of Thrones showrunners to uh, to go to those extreme lengths. But at the same time, you know, I've been on a lot of film sets and been, you know, wandering around studios. I used to work at Paramount for a while. So seeing, you know, being in sound stages and, and taking a look at the construction of these sets, a lot of them are actually, if you look at, you know, behind the facades of the walls that are, you know, that make up the living rooms of some of your favorite uh, sitcom houses, for example, a lot of them have old TV shows written on the back of them that they used to be a part of a different, a totally different set. So it seems really wasteful that they would actually just literally set fire to this entire huge uh, thing, even though the exterior of Winterfell may not be, you know, as, as uh, interchangeable <laughs> as, uh, as some other parts. I'm sure there are plenty of aspects of that set that could easily be slotted into a different show as soon as Game of Thrones comes to a close, or actually maybe even be used or repurposed in one of the upcoming uh, spinoffs or prequels or something like that a little bit later on. Um, so yeah, I don't really think that they set fire to, <laughs> to this set, as entertaining as that might be uh, for them. I mean, that would be a pretty legendary uh, <laughs> fake out if they were to do that. Yet well, another way for Game of Thrones to uh, to sort of enter into the record book. Completely random trivia. Uh, if you ever watch Gone with the Wind again, uh, pay close attention during the burning of Atlanta because they're burning a lot of King Kong old sets. Interesting. Okay, yeah, I yeah, did not know that. Cool, I'll have to check that out. Um, all right, so that's all we have for this episode of Slash Film Daily. You guys can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features that you can find at SlashFilm.com. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, and all of the popular podcast apps. Please feel free, again, to send your feedback and questions and comments to peter at SlashFilm.com, and make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in that email in case we decide to read it on the air in a future episode please rate and review the podcast on itunes as well and spread the word that helps us tremendously uh jacob hall where can we find more of your work online i am on slashfilm.com every single day and i am on twitter where i am at jacob s hall and my name is ben you can find me writing at slashfilm.com as well and you can find me on twitter at ben pears thanks for listening everybody we'll see you tomorrow <laughs>